Good morning and welcome to Sojourn. We gather in the name of the risen Christ, by His grace and for His glory. So each week what we do is we turn to His Word. We've been working through the, the book of Genesis, so if you guys have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 8, is where we'll be this morning. And each week we, we open up the words of our Christ, we let Him equip us as saints, we let Him speak, and we sit in wonderful and glad submission to Him, to His Word. So, as we gather together today, as the people of God under His Word, let's, let's pray and let's ask God to, to speak, and ask Him that, that we would listen. Pray with me. God in heaven, we're very thankful for your word. Help us to humbly submit ourselves to it. And God, may we not think of, of Noah and the ark and the flood as, as just some story that happened a long time ago that has no connection to us today. May we see your character. May we see who you are. May you draw us to yourself. And would you change us? We don't ask that just information would be exchanged during this time, but that hearts would be transformed, that that your people would be equipped, that we would listen to you well. We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 7 was this picture of of this devastating flood, a a horrific picture of the judgment of God. And and with any kind of natural disaster or or large uh, uh, event that's that's, that's horrifying, a lot of people are left with the question of of, of where do we go from here? how, How do we pick up the pieces after something so horrific has gone on? You might have asked that in your own life. Where do I go from from this moment on? How do I move forward and and make sense of all this? How do I pick up the pieces and put things back together? And and that question approaches us as we go to Genesis chapter 8. It it would be for God. Like, how does does God kind of move from here? How does He go forward after pouring out His judgment upon the earth through this flood? How, How does Noah move forward after His... People that he knew, friends, and other people around him that lived with him. How how does he move forward after everything he he has known has has been destroyed? And and how does does the earth move forward after it's been kind of under this deluge of water? And so we're we're, we're trying to think, where do we go from here? And Genesis 8 gives us such a clear, ringing answer to those questions. Because Genesis chapter 8, right from the beginning, shows us a a God who, who doesn't have to scramble. I think like, oh man, I flooded everything, now now what do I need to do from here? Shows us Noah's response and how he responds to the deluge that is hit. And it shows us what's kind of of next. And and so Genesis chapter 8 teaches us to be reminded or to give thought to God's faithfulness. See, God isn't scrambling, looking around for ideas of what's going to happen after the flood. He's faithful to His word, as we'll see. We need to be reminded of His faithfulness, be reminded of His deliverance that He provided for Noah and those on the ark, and we need to respond rightly as well as the people of God today. And so the flood ending, it does leave us to this place where there's a lot unanswered. How are we going to move forward? What's the agenda going to be now? It leaves a lot to be determined, but what it doesn't give us is this fuzzy picture on who's in charge. We're definitely left with a sovereign, faithful God still. And we see Him... Respond to His creation. Respond to His promises in Genesis chapter 8. So the last of Genesis chapter 7, you look back, you can just look back in 23 and 24, that blotted out from the earth everything that moved. And those who were within the ark, that is the animals, and Noah and his family, his children and their spouses were left alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. So we have this prevailing of the water. It is winning. It is hitting its mark, taking out all that God has decided. But on the ark, God had a promise to keep, and He responds to this in chapter or in chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Where we're at this hinge moment of what's going to happen, where are we going to go from here, and God answers this immediately. He says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark, or in the ark. So this is a, a hinge statement. We, we've been building, building, building. We've seen some horrible judgment poured out through this flood. And so now we're waiting. Like, where are we going to go from here? Where's the resolution? This is this hinge statement that, that brings resolution to the flood. And kind of sets the tone for, for how we're going to move forward from here. And here's the tone. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. 
Now this is interesting to think about when you think about remembering and God. Like, why do we need to write this? Why is this written down? Do, do we need to remind God? Did God need to be reminded? Like, was, was the author thinking of, we think it was Moses, so he wasn't trying to jog God's memory, right? I mean, what is, what is going on here? Why would they even include this in the Scripture? Well, the flood was this major event. There was a lot going on, right? Your deluge of, of the earth. There's, there's a lot of activity going on. God has a lot to kind of hold if he, as He's upholding this earth. So maybe He just got kind of lost in the activity of everything. You know, like, I'm trying to keep these, these waters where they, I want them to go. And then I've got to keep this raining for 40 days. Then i got to stop. Maybe He's got a lot going on. And He's like, oh, wait a second. I, that's right. I remember this. There's this ark and there's this guy in there. There we go. Now, now I've got it. No, no, that's not why it was written. Clearly, we, we don't take that view of, of God, that He needs to be reminded. We don't think that he, he kind of forgot what was going on in the ark, or He forgot Noah, or anything like that was going on. So, so why write this? He didn't have to have His memory jog. He doesn't need to have some sort of recollection come up of, oh yeah, there's an ark. This is written instead for, for readers, for, for the people, for us. This was written for us to remind readers of what? That God is faithful. That God remembers His Word. And His remembering here is a remembering in order to save. If you remember in chapter 6, verse 18, God made a promise to Noah. He says, I will establish My covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. God had promised to protect Noah and his family and those animals on the ark to protect them from the coming deluge, to protect them from the judgment that he was going to pour out on the earth. He made a covenant with Noah, he promised to save him, and he acts here to fulfill his promises to Noah. That is, that, that God is not like these other gods that we've, we've seen in the flood stories where, where we saw this God of, of Gilgamesh, the gods were, were pulling back in the Babylonian kind of depiction of the flood. They were cowering, they were hiding in the heavens. We don't see God doing that. We don't see God pulling back. We see God fulfilling His promises, being faithful to His character, being faithful to who He is all along the way. See, this was not written for God. This was not even written for Noah after it was written after his time. This was written for the people of God. And we think that this was time of written, that the Genesis was written maybe at the time before the, the Israelites are going to take it, go into the promised land, take the promised land. This was written for, for those Israelites that were doubting. Can God fulfill His promises? He said He'd give us this land. Can He do that? Those people are really big. They have strong, mighty kingdoms and big, tall walls. This was written for the people of God. They're like, does He really care about us? Does He love us? We had lots in, in Egypt. I was eating all these good foods. And here I'm just eating this bread. And, and what? I don't like this. God really care about us. Does He love us? He's going to be faithful to His Word. It was written for, for prophets that were wavering. They had to bring messages of judgment to the people of God. Or even up to kings and saying, you're going down and you're going into exile. This was written for us. For people that need to hear that God is always faithful to His Word. That God doesn't forget one dot of all that He has promised, of all that He has said. We've had six, seven, eight chapters now so far in the Scripture. And God has made some promises and He's fulfilled every single one of them. But sometimes it doesn't seem like that. Maybe Noah felt like that. Sometimes it seems like the promises of God are far from complete, or maybe even seemingly ignored. And we need to hear verse 1, that God remembers. God remembers Noah. The people of God need to be reminded that God always remembers. He's always faithful to His Word, because at times, it's not going to appear like He does. You guys have likely had some of these times in your own lives. Psalmists speak about it often. I'll read one. Psalm 13. Some of you are familiar with this and actually probably have cried it out in your own lives. How long, O oh Lord? Now this is written by David. How long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? Does God love David? Wasn't David a king? He wasn't going to put foreign enemies to flight? Wasn't he the one who was going to... His enemies are going to lose to him because he is the anointed one of the Lord. And he says, how long? How long will you hide your face from me? Wasn't he after God's own heart? Didn't God reveal himself mightily to David? And he says, how long will you forget me? Will you hide your face from me? See, what he's doing is he's looking around. He knows the promises of God. And he's looking around and says, like, the enemies are not supposed to be winning, but it looks like they are. 
You're, you're supposed to be, I'm, I'm your anointed one, you're supposed to have a relationship with me and it looks like you've forgotten. So he's looking around and saying, I thought you said this, but, but my experience is, is telling me something different. Now surely Noah during his long time on the ark might have had a few tinges of doubts. 150 to 40 days of, of rain, 150 days on this boat like with these animals, like, you is stir crazy doing that. Like, your mind would probably do all sorts of things. Surely he thought, like, still seems to be pretty, pretty bad out there. Ark hasn't come to a stop yet. I don't have a break for this thing. Like, I'm not sure how this is going to go for us. Like, God, you said you'd save me, but now it seems like maybe you forgot. Maybe he had a tinge of that, and he had some doubts that God had forgotten about us. And we might have similar doubts. Now, I would say that I think that that's a normal thing for the people of God. And not to be shoved away as like, if you have any doubts, just forget about them and move forward. No, no, ask those questions, but once again, point them in the right direction toward the Lord who actually can answer. We might have had those doubts. Like, how long? We're looking around at our earth and the world. We're thinking of all the suffering and the pain and all the, the, the problems. We say, how long? Thought you were a good God. Where are you? What's, what's happening here? Why isn't this being fulfilled? We could have all those questions ourselves, and we need to hear again. God remembered Noah. God hasn't forgotten any of His promises that God always remembers, in case you need to be reminded of that, that God always remembers His Word, that He is always faithful to His Word, that He will not forget any one portion, that He is faithful to all. The Scripture is really clear. that Maybe we think that we're bringing our kids up in a hard generation. I don't know how they're going to make it. No, God is faithful to all generations, the Scripture says. We don't need to worry about that. God is faithful. We're not in charge and we don't need to be. That he remembers, and he does this in Genesis over and over again. He remembers Abraham and the promise he made to him. We'll see that. He remembers Rachel, says that in Genesis. He remembers in Exodus chapter 2 when the people of God are now slaves in Egypt. He remembers his people. He doesn't forget him. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't forgotten any of his promises. And the people of God who who struggle with doubt and unbelief and and lack of trust in God and his word need to be reminded again of God's faithfulness. And so we have Genesis 8.1. That God remembered we don't need to be reminded of it and that we just need to like know, like here and just, oh, God's faith. No, we need to think about it. We need to put our minds on this. God remembered. How is God faithful? How has He done this? We don't just need to recall it. We need to give thought to it. God's Word is true and is to be accepted. But why? Well, we say because it's His Word. It's tied so closely to who God is, to His character. And up until this point, who have we seen God to be? A faithful God. Always fulfilling His Word. A good God. A gracious God. A God who's slow to anger. Who's abounding in love. We've already seen that in seven chapters in the book of Genesis. He's revealed Himself as one who can be trusted. So His Word is faithful. His Word, His Bible, our Word that we have in front of us, it's can be trusted. We can trust our lives to Him because He remembers. He shows His faithfulness even here and, and highlights it, I think. As the divine author of, of Genesis 8.1, God is highlighting His faithfulness, His character, who He is, that He doesn't forget. And begins the chapter with this, this great tone that's going to set the tone for a while in the book of Genesis. So what follows then, everything after this, isn't some strange weather pattern. You know, it's not just like something weird came and this wind started... No, this is God working. This is God remembering His promises and fulfilling them. This is God delivering as He chooses. It isn't just like some strange weather pattern that comes on the earth. So again, far from cowering in the corner, God is controlling His creation. The rest of verse 1 says this, God made the wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided, and the fountains of the deep, and the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually, and at the end of 150 days the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month, in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, and the tops of the mountains were seen. So what we're seeing is we kind of is a refresher of, of, of creation. Right? We remember in creation we, we kind of went to an uncreation with a flood. 
There were waters in the creation days early on. The waters were above and below. It was a chaotic picture before there was life. This is what God has done again. When He brought the flood, there was waters above, pouring down, and waters coming up from the ground. So waters were kind of coming down. Uncreation was kind of the picture of the flood. And here we're seeing God work back into some creation language. That is the, the wind, or it could be His Spirit, like the Spirit that was hovering over the water in Genesis chapter 1. The, the, the Spirit, the, the wind, blew, and, and it morphs to where there's, there's life can be sustained again on the earth. That is, the, the flood has done exactly what God has intended it to. It has cleansed the earth and there's this new creation. This is starting afresh, a new beginning that is going on here. And what I love about this language that is, is hearkening, that is making us think back to creation, the creation account, is that God hasn't abandoned His intention for creation. That is, what was going on is that he didn't say, like, everything's messed up now, I better figure something else out. No, he's continuing on with his original intent for creation. And so he remembers Noah, and then he delivers on his promise to Noah by making the water go down. It's subsiding. The rain stops, and everyone on the ark is still alive. No animal got diseased or anything while they were on there that we know of. Seems like God has faithfully delivered as He said He would. And and after the rain stops... Noah starts to, to send out some scouts into the land to check the status of the earth. If you look at verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the otters were, waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and he took her and brought her into the ark with him. He's a really kind, gentle soul. Then he waited another seven days and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him that evening and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he had waited another seven days and sent forth the dove and she did not return to him anymore. Now, apparently this was constructed in a way that that Noah didn't have a view out to the earth. So he's he's sending out birds to to bring back signals. And he he had had some time to train them. So I'm hoping that he had, like, this is his special forces fleet of birds that he's sending out. Like the raven and then this one one dove that he really poured his soul into. That if he came back, he was going to receive it back in. He sent those out. But but this is more than just like a a cute little bird story where Noah's like friends with the animals. Like, this this would have been an encouraging picture for Noah. How encouraging after you've, you've seen rain for 40 days and 40 nights, after you've been on this boat a long, long time, that you, you go and send something out and you see that God is doing things just as He said. That the 40 days have passed and now the rain has stopped. And, and, and now the, the water is going down because I'm sending these out and I'm getting these signals back that, that God is doing exactly what He told me He would do, that He's faithful to all of His Word. I think that Noah would have been greatly encouraged about this, that the deluge, the flood, hadn't overtaken them, and that God is faithful in keeping them alive the entire time. That is, that the, the chaos and the judgment of the flood hadn't had the final say. This is what Noah's experiencing. The, the judgment of God was poured out and he would have felt it as he's bobbing and weaving in the ark. And that now things are changing. They're going back. They hadn't had the final say. There wasn't just utter devastation. It was not the only thing to say about the flood. There was also salvation. Noah is sending this out and re- being reminded of the promises of God even as these birds come back. But then there's this new beginning. And once again we see kind of creation type language when we get a bunch of of firsts, starting in verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. So the the picture is, this picture of this new creation, this, this new beginning, God had separated the waters again. And He spoke to His creation again. This God is interacting. He hasn't abandoned His creation. He hasn't just pulled away and moved on and said, like, I'll throw the flood on them, then I'll make the waters go, but then I'm done. Like, they can take it from there. That's not what's going on here. He's there. And He interacts. And He speaks. And things are responding to Him exactly as they should. And like creation, once the waters are in their place, God brings forth life. Verse 14. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. And bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. More creation language. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. I think that it's really, really interesting that Noah is this righteous guy, not perfect, but but righteous, waits on the Lord to tell him to to get off of the ark. He, He waits for God to command him. And God does command him as He does command at the very start of creation as well. He gives him a command. That is, when we read these verses, we're just saying, alright, great, Noah, survive the flood, he gets off the ark. But what's going on here is that God has delivered on His promises. God has been faithful. The seed that He promised in Genesis chapter 3, a seed would come from the woman that would finally and fully smash out the seed of the serpent that we saw in Genesis chapter 3, is still alive. God can still be faithful to His Word. His faithfulness, His goodness, all tied up in this ark, in Noah surviving and coming out. And so we, we shouldn't just hear, oh, Noah got off the ark. We should hear God is resoundingly fulfilling His promises and being faithful to His servants, being faithful to His Word, that a seed would continue. So not only was the ark saved, but God is delivering on His promises and He does it perfectly. And here again... God intends that His creatures, His creation, be fruitful and multiply. So, we just recently moved, and and part of moving is like changing your address with every single known entity out there. You have like 30 bills to change, all this kind of stuff. So I've spent some time on hold on the phone. And here's what you'll do. You'll call these places, and you will hear that some sort of message like this will say like, Please remain on the line, because the options may have changed. And, And I don't know how many times I've heard that. I'm like, do you change them every day? Like, has it been a year since you've changed them? Like, if you know your extension, you're you're supposed to be able to just type it in immediately. But it seems like they always say, like, you need to wait because things might have changed since the last time you were on here. And and that is could be the picture of what's going on. Like, maybe God is starting afresh, he's starting anew, and he's like, all right, no, you just hang out for a second and like, let me tell you how things have changed, and then you can move from there. But, but we're reminded that, that God keeps his promises, that he's faithful, that he delivers Noah, and that the things, that the intent for his creation hasn't changed. Like, God hasn't made a new program and, and rewired things while they were on the ark. God has... Remembered his promises, he's delivered Noah, but he also hasn't abandoned his original intent for creation. What was his original intent for creation? That God created, not out of some sort of need, not out of some sort of desire to, to get something that would fulfill him. God creates, we're reminded, out of the overflow of his goodness, out of the overflow of his love that he has within the Trinity, within himself, he, out of this overflow he creates. He wants people, he wants creation to share in his goodness, to share in his love, to share in his glory, so he creates. He creates humanity specifically in his own image. That is to reflect back to God his greatness, his glory. To to be the ones who would hold dominion, that would represent Him on the earth, that would resemble Him on the earth. And that intent that He had for them from the beginning has not changed here with Noah. Now, if if you have ever lost your house or a tornado comes through and wipes everything out, that might be the time for you to start thinking like, alright, what what changes do we want to make now? Like, where do we need to shift some things? Like what design flaws did we see before? Or what updates would we like now that everything has been wiped clean? And God could be doing that, right? He, things are wiped clean now. Now how do you want to redesign this? Like how do you want to, how do you want to, like people were pretty bad and once, this, once the fall came. So do you want to redesign, do you want to do it? God doesn't do that. Because His original intention was good. It was perfect. And because he still has a plan that's being carried forward and he's faithful to that plan. Instead, one author said this, Noah is the new Adam in a renewed creation. And God is making a new beginning with the seed of the woman. It's a new beginning. But it's it's the picture of the the very good beginning in Genesis chapter 1. His original intention stands. That God isn't flaky saying, well, well, let me me try this. And if it doesn't work, then we'll just do a flood. And if that doesn't work, then we might try something else. God isn't flaky like that. His original intention stands. This is where we're reminded that God is faithful, He's steadfast, He has good intentions from the beginning. So we have this saying that someone can fly off the handle. You might do that, you might have done that this morning. Fly off the handle, I think, is a picture of kind of an axe, where the axe head comes off the handle when you're trying to use it for something. 
And, and the idea is that some people can fly off the handle for no reason. It's not like they've been chopping all day and they just like, boom, it's off. But like, they just fly off for, for no reason whatsoever. Well, what makes you do that? What makes you fly off the handle? My, my guess is that you can come up with a few things, maybe you've even experienced this morning. There's a few things that make you fly off the handle. It's like, I have to hear that one more time. Like, it's over. You're done. Like, how many of you probably have done that just this morning? And here we're reminded that, that God isn't this, this God who's this impatient judge who just flies off the handle. Like, I'm done with this creation. I'm putting the flood on here. I'm, I'm, I'm being rid of all this stuff and I'm not handling it again. He doesn't do that. He, he's a patient judge. His creation was disrupted by sin, but He doesn't fly off the handle. He, he's patient. He, he, he has His own people. He, he makes promises. He interacts. He's still there. He continues on with His plan that He had from the beginning. That He's so set on this plan that He's going to make sure, secure its provision. Make sure that things go on. This is so clear in Scripture because we have the end. If you look in Genesis chapter 1, or chapter 21, or Revelation chapter 21, sorry, beginning to end. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, we, we see a picture of the end. And he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. That is to say, when when we talk about the end, we're not talking about utter destruction of everything God has created. We're talking about a new creation. It's not wiping it out completely and saying, let's just do something completely. No. The intent from Genesis chapter 1 was that God would dwell with man. And there would be no death. And there would be no mourning. There would be no crying. And, and this is exactly what God's going to bring about in the end. That there would be no crying. That God would be with man. That everything would work out as it was intended. That there would be no sin as there was in Genesis Chapter 1 through 3, part of it. That there would be no flood of judgment coming down because there would be no need for judgment anymore. That, as Isaiah would say, that the wolf could lay down with the lamb. And they'd be okay with that because creation isn't angry with one another. That the cobra could, could hang out with children. Which would be cool if you were a child and you wanted to play with cobras. Like, that would be your chance. It would be a place that, that like the garden, would be a place where God could meet with man and be with man perfectly in the presence of one another without sin, disrupting relationship and breaking off the way God had intended things to be. And this is what was pictured at the beginning. This is what is pictured at the end. And God isn't altering that plan because of sin. He, he's working to bring that about finally and fully. And so he hasn't abandoned his intention. He's providing for it to continue. He remembers his promises. He delivers Noah. He proves himself faithful to his word. No doubt this would have been kind of a, a strange time for Noah. A chaotic time. All that he has known has been wiped out. People that he has known, places they're, they're all wiped clean. So this would have been strange for Noah. And the, and the question is, is, how does he respond? And the, the author gives us Noah's response as well. Verse 20 says that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now think about Noah's recent days. Everything for a long time has been leading up to this one big event. So he has been promised something about a flood, then he's been provided, like, you just start building because this flood is coming. Like, everything for him has been building. Like, you just get to work on this ark, this flood is coming. And then the flood comes, right? And he's got that for 40 days, and then he has to be on there 150 days. Like, everything, has, his life has been circling around this flood, circling around this one big event. Build the ark, get supplies, stay on the ark, feed the animals, all this stuff. And he gets on the ark. Then this happens. Life has been all about this ark. And then what happens? Now it's over. It's over. So now what do you do? Everything that your life has been about for so long is now gone. 
We don't need you to build an ark anymore. You don't need to stay on the ark anymore. What are you going to do now? And it is so easy for people, for us, to take the good gifts of God, like work, like building an ark, and and find our identity there. That is to find our, our meaning there. Find who we are there. This happens all the time. You see this especially with athletes. When they retire or get injured, they're like devastated and don't know what to do because their identity has been built upon a certain thing. And when it's taken away, there, there's devastation. The same could be true of us. What happens when it's over? What happens when it's gone? If your identity is built in your children and then they are taken from you, then you are devastated and destroyed. Because that was your whole meaning. Your whole reason for existence was built on them. Or if it's a job for you. That if your job was taken away, would you be completely and utterly, utterly devastated? And it's our personhood can be so wrapped up in something that when it's over, it's, it just ravages us. And it would have been easy for Noah to do this. All in his life has been built up for this ark, right? He'd lived a long time, but then his recent history was all about building, supplying, getting ready for, and surviving this flood. And now the flood is over and Noah gets off the boat. Like all that work, all that stuff that you've been building to is done. Now what are you going to do? How do you respond now? He's not devastated. He doesn't go into mourning. Maybe that's later. But right now his response is that he worships God. That is, I think it's fair to say that Noah's primary identity wasn't in his work. He wasn't so caught up in this ark and this flood that he failed to recognize that he had a better name. He has has a better name than than just being a builder of the ark. He he has a better name than than just being a survivor who who makes it through a flood. Noah has a better and a deeper and a longer lasting identity than that. And it makes us think, like, where is is our primary identity? what, What defines us? As a person, what defines us? What, what brings us the most joy? What brings us the most pain? What, where do we find our meaning in life? And, and the, the reason we ask those questions is, is that's where identity is found. Our identity is found in, in the thing that we think defines us. And the reality is that every single one of us, because we are by nature human, we will find our identity and our meaning in something. That is, we're not... People that, that have no meaning, we don't know what it is. And oh, you will find it in something, even if it's in, like, I'm the person that doesn't have meaning. You'll find your identity in something. Another way to say that is that everyone is made for worship and worshiping something. That's the same kind of way that we're talking about these. You are made to worship and you are worshiping something. You have an identity, you will find it in something. Now Noah, like all human beings, was created by a creator for a specific purpose to find his primary identity and to worship, another way to say that, the one creator. And he directs his worship in the right place. He was created to be a worshiper. Since the fall, we find that that worship is directed all sorts of places, toward the self, toward creation, all sorts of places. But Noah directs his to the one true living God. And his identity, his, his meaning spills over into his activity. That is, his identity wasn't fully wrapped up in this ark. It was wrapped up in his relation to this God who had delivered him. And so he responds rightly with worship. God had saved Noah. He delivered Noah. The flood is over. And Noah responds not with devastation, not with the thought of what am I going to do now. No response with worship to the one true living God. The flood, which is this picture of the waters of judgment. God cleansing the earth should remind us of judgment. And not just judgment that's out there, but judgment that we deserve. Because here's what God did. He poured His judgment out on sinners. And we are in that group. I mean, we don't have time to build that argument, but the reality is that you're a sinner. And your conscience is bearing witness that you are a sinful person. And when we look at the flood and the waters of judgment, it should remind us that we deserve judgment. That we deserve to be taken out. 
But the flood isn't just a picture of judgment. It is also a picture of salvation. We have the ark. We have people on the ark. God hadn't just judged. He'd also saved. He'd worked to bring salvation. Not because Noah was perfect. We'll see that even more clearly here coming up. But because God was gracious. And so it's a picture of of judgment and salvation. And Noah gets off this boat and he responds with worship. And like Noah, we have an act of deliverance that's even more powerful than the flood. That we need to respond to. That is that we've seen a greater act of judgment and a greater act of salvation. You were with us last week. We spoke clearly about these things. but, But God has poured out judgment. But this time it didn't come in a flood. It came upon Himself. This is the one we know as Jesus, who is God in flesh. God Himself came down, became part of His creation that He created to worship Him and took the judgment that His creation deserved upon Himself that He could bring them to the point of salvation. We have a greater act of judgment poured out on Jesus and a greater act of salvation that we receive through Jesus that we are to respond to as the people of God. That is, we should find our identity in that delivering activity from God and the one who delivered it to us. That's where our identity is meant to be found. This was God's design for us all from the beginning, that we find our identity, our greatest fulfillment, our meaning, not in creation, not in what we do specifically, but in whose we are. We're made to find our identity and our meaning in the one true living God, the one who designed us and made us and perfectly can fulfill and satisfy us. So I think that that means that, that worship to God should be our, our greatest fulfillment, our, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest joy. This is what we were made for. God designed it that way. Nothing else can satisfy like this. Nothing else will be as fulfilling. All other identities will leave us wanting more. But Noah responds with worship to his God. And this response of worship involves for Noah sacrifice. Verse 20. We read this just a second ago. But he, he took, takes every clean animal and some of every clean bird and, and offers burnt sacrifices on the altar. Now this is puzzling. Right? You just saved all these animals from the flood. They've been alive. You've been keeping them alive for a long time. Why did you just let them get off the boat and then slit their throats? Like, that's what happened. They, they've been surviving this all. God brought him these animals, and he just lets them get off and starts cutting them up. The, the thought could be there, like, wouldn't this, like, weren't these on there so that things wouldn't be extinct? Like, are you killing off species here, Noah? Maybe he did. But I don't think so, because we look in chapter 7, verse 2, and he says, God's clear command to him, take with you seven pairs of all the clean animals. Isn't that interesting? That God tells him which animals to bring, and how many? And he says, of of the clean animals, you're, you're to bring seven of those clean animals. That is, that when Noah gets off the ark, he goes to worship. And when he goes to worship, he, he brings a sacrifice. Where is he going to get this sacrifice without killing off species that God wants to be on the earth? Well, God provided a sacrifice. God provided the means to be worshipped by Noah. We, we saw last week that the judgment of God is, is important. That sin, sin is serious. God takes it so seriously that He judges it. God takes salvation so seriously that He provides it. He secures it. God takes His worship so seriously that He provides sacrifice for it. Even keeping Him alive, going all this trouble on the ark to keep these animals alive just so they could die in honor to the one true living God. So we're here, we're, we're taught the weight of worship. That God gives provision for Noah not just to survive but to respond rightly with worship and sacrifice. God made humans for worship. He made some of these animals to be sacrificed that He might be pleased and honored with this sacrifice. And He provides rightly for that to happen. That is, God is to be worshipped, but He is to be worshipped and approached on His terms. And what are his terms? Well, we saw this with Cain and Abel. We see it here. We'll see it all through the book of all through the scripture that God is to be approached in one way by sinful people, and that is by sacrifice. That is by blood. You don't come to God on your own. You don't just walk up to God and have some sort of approach and some sort of standing before him. Blood is required. Why? Well, there's a lot to say on that. One reason is to show that God's worthy. He is worthy of that kind of sacrifice. In worship of His name. 
Another is a picture that we see a lot more later on, but we don't see so much here, that that it's tied to atonement. The removal of sin and guilt and, and the stain of sin. And guess what? God provides that. God provides a way for Him to be honored and worshipped through sacrifice here on this boat. He gives all that's needed to show Him as worthy of worship. But for us, as we think about this, I mean, we, we don't worship by sacrificing animals. We didn't bring any cats up here, although some of you may have wanted to and, and pour their blood out for good. Not saying I wanted to. Some of you may have wanted to. Wow. We don't do that. Why, why don't we offer animal sacrifices anymore? Well, we, we read in the Scripture that, that Jesus has become our atoning sacrifice. That is, Jesus has been the once-for-all sacrifice for us. His blood has atoned for sin. There, there's no blood left that can get rid of sin, eradicate or remove the, the guilt and the burden and the power of sin. Jesus' blood has, has done all that. So we don't make blood sacrifices anymore. Jesus has made that for us. We trust in it. We believe in that sacrifice. And yet... God still calls us to respond to that deliverance like Noah responds with worship. Now, we don't respond with sacrificial worship. We trust in the sacrifice of our Creator. But there's, there's still sacrifice. Romans talks about this. After discussing for 11 chapters the, the greatness and the glory of the Gospel, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that by the mercies of God, that is in response to, and that's key, in response to the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We do not do this, in other words, in order to gain God's favor or to make up for our sins. We are doing this in light of God's mercy, in response to His deliverance and salvation. And in response to His deliverance and salvation, there is sacrifice, and it is our own lives. Not to make up for our poor behavior, not to make up for our poor work before God, but to respond in glad submission to all that He has already done. We present our bodies to Him, or our lives is another way to say that, as a living sacrifice. That is, God is worthy of all of us, and we ourselves are to jump on the altar and say, Here am I, God. Be honored in me, offering myself to You. I want to present all of me, throwing myself on the altar, all of my life, all that I am, It is to be unto you an offering, a sacrifice that you might be worshipped and pleased by it. God provides the mercy. God provides the deliverance. God provides the body. And says respond rightly with it. This is what He does for Noah. Delivered him. Gave the bodies there. The animals are there for him to offer. And He says respond with worship. And so that's where the conclusion of this story should be no surprise to us. If you look in verse 21. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in His heart, I I will never again curse the ground because of man. For, and this is confusing, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. That is, this is a, what kind of aroma? It's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And he starts to make this, this promise, of, a gracious promise to humanity in response to the worship that, that Noah has given. That is, Noah, along with all of humanity, post-fall, after the fall, it was born in sin. It's sinful. He has a sinful heart. We'll see this uh, as we continue on with the book, of, uh, the book of Genesis. And we see it here in the rest of 21. That, that there's, there's evil there. Even though men is evil and their intentions are evil, but even evil men, sinful people, post-fall people like us can please God. This is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. He is pleased by His worship. That is that there's no thought that our God is too perfect that He can't be pleased with our worthless sacrifices and our lame attempts to honor and glorify His great name. He can be pleased with our worship. He can be pleased with our lives. He can be pleased with us throwing ourselves on the altar and offering ourselves up to Him no matter how weak and feeble we are. God can be pleased by these things. Now you might have heard, there's, there's a lot of people that I've heard this from, that would say like, all of our righteous deeds are filthy rags before the Lord. And so, seems like that can get you to the point where you think like, what can I even do to please Him? He's just, I do all these righteous things and He he thinks they're filthy rags. And He just, what what good are they to the Lord? I think that's a a misinterpretation of that. That's when when Isaiah takes that, he says, all your righteous deeds are like dirty rags before the Lord because all their righteous deeds were, were done from a heart not to please and honor the Lord, but to make a showing and to do it to please none of themselves. Well, that, that would be the context there, but, but we misapply it when, when we say that, that God isn't pleased by, by our righteous deeds or by our worship. 
It's not as if our, our righteous deeds gain us standing. It's not as if our righteous deeds also can't please God. They can be pleasing to God. He can be pleased by all of these things because we know His character. Who is God? He's the Father. Father of creation. He made these people. Speaks to them like children. And do we forget what the character of this Father is so far? Slow to anger. Have we not seen that? Merciful. Gracious to save. Abounding in steadfast love for His creation. When... When my kids give me drawings, and they do, brought one up here for you. This is a picture my daughter drew for me. Does it look like anybody familiar? She said, this is a picture of me and her, and we, that's a basketball. We're going to a basketball game. thought that was pretty awesome. We'll probably cherish this for as long as I live. But when my daughter brings me that, do I, do I look at it angry and be like, that doesn't look anything like me. Did you see the shape of that dude's head? That is not the way my head is shaped. And basketball, like, we, we're not going to a bat. What are you talking about? Like, do I respond angrily like that? And I, no, this is the answer in case you're one. I do not, and I hope you do not either if your kids bring you pictures. No, I was so honored by that, that she would draw a picture of, of me and her and, and doing something together. Even though that, that may not look like her and that, that may not look like me, like, this was a, something that she did as, as a way to honor as a way to show me her, her love. And God is pleased like that as a father with His child. That even sin-stained worship, that is heartfelt, can please God. Sin-stained righteous deeds can please our God. Not in a repayment for anything. Not to make up for our sins. But as a way to please and honor His name, the One who has already saved us and delivered all the righteous deeds that we have ever needed. And He's pleased by these things. He's pleased when we throw ourselves on the altar, even though we know we're probably going to jump back off again because we, we want to offer ourselves, but then a little bit later we don't really want to offer ourselves. He's still by pleased by us jumping on once again, over and over again, saying, I want you to take it all, but sometimes I really don't. And those things still please Him. And He's pleased by Noah's worship. And the aroma is sweet to Him. So much that he says at the end of 21 that I'm never going to strike down every living creature as I have done. Even though man's heart is evil from his youth, he still promises not to do this. And he says, verse 22, While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That is, God is saying, I am really gracious. And man is really sinful, but I'm not going to do this again. Not this way. The basis for this promise obviously is not man's good intentions, good deeds, good behavior, righteous works. The basis for this is the grace of God. Who He is. Man may have deserved to be wiped out, and we're going to see that in Genesis 10 and 11, and continued on until right now. We deserve to be wiped out and judged, but the basis of this promise is on the grace of God. and He is a gracious God. Yes, even after the flood, He's gracious. Yes, even this mean Old Testament God is gracious. He is a gracious God because He says, You still have evil intentions and I'm still not going to wipe you out. That's the grace of God. No flood again. God will preserve and sustain until it's time for final judgment. So God's character hasn't changed. He's a holy and a patient judge. People haven't changed. They have evil intentions, evil hearts, sin has infested us. But by God's grace, He's working to cleanse the world of sin as He did with the flood. Not not by sending a flood this time to cleanse it. Instead, God sent His Son. He sent His Son that, that in His Son, people might have new hearts, cleansed hearts, Hearts that are free from the guilt of sin, the stain of sin, the power of sin, the penalty of sin. That is, that there would be a seed who would come and wipe out all those powers, Satan and sin and death. And that came in Jesus. So we need to be reminded. Not just reminded that we need to recall, but we need to give thought to what God has done. That He came. That He judged. That He saved. That He remembered His creation and didn't pull back. But dove right in. 
that He acted to fulfill His Word, and that all His promises find their yes in Jesus. That He delivered on His promises to provide provide salvation for many and many more to come. That one from all tribe, tongues, and nations will be before Him in worship. It's ongoing. And in between the, the flood and the coming fire, God graciously cleanses through the body and the blood of Jesus. So believers, by the mercies of God, may we respond with worship. One of the ways that we do that as the people of God is is we remember God's saving works. We we do this in the Lord's Supper. That is, when we take the Lord's Supper, it's, it's a response of worship to what God has already done. We do not gain any standing by eating this meal. Not before God. And you certainly don't gain a higher standing in the church because you are coming forward and doing the like. There is no, nothing in this meal that would put you up on the ladder of salvation or of righteous deeds or in this church. No, this is a response to what God has already done. And what has God done? He, he, he said, He took the cup after supper and said, This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He's poured His blood that our sins might be forgiven. It says this... this Bread is, is my body broken for you. He broke His body that we might be made new. And so one of our responses is to respond by, by taking this meal and remembering what Jesus has done. What He has done and that we have relationship now with Him and that He will one day come again and bring forth this new creation. And so if you're a believer, respond with worship in this meal. If you're not a believer, don't take this meal. Take Jesus. If you don't know what that means, please come find a believer. Talk to us. What what does this mean to to believe in Jesus? And we'd love to walk you through that. But don't take this. This is a response of worship to the the God who has delivered, who's saved because His judgment was poured out on Jesus. Pray with me and then we'll take this meal. Father, thank You for the deliverance that You've offered in Jesus Christ. A deliverance that was, was kind of portrayed and foreshadowed in the flood, but that we see in even more vivid terms upon the cross. And and Father, we we want to thank You that You didn't just create us and pull back. You created us and You dove in to deliver us, to continue on the the intention that You had for us from the beginning, that we might share in Your goodness and Your love and Your mercy, that we might experience who You are, and that we might know You. And God, I pray for those who don't, that they repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus. I pray for those that do, that we would respond with hearts that say, you have done beyond what we could think or imagine for me. May my response be that I offer up again my body, that it might be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. God, I pray that we'd see it visibly in one another now as we take this meal. That we'd be encouraged by one another's faith. That Jesus' blood speaks the word that we need for us before you. That his body was broken, that we might have a place. God, be honored and worshipped in our time in this meal, in our time of singing, in our time of prayer. Amen.